This is Guns and Butter. It's, uh, it's all the rhetoric of pro-democracy. I call it the, the weaponization of democracy and human rights. And this has become, in the, in the last 30 years since NED was created, something called the National Endowment for Democracy. It's become a huge industry and a very refined, very polished, uh, and very effective regime change apparatus. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, F. William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, How Washington Destroyed Poland and Russia in the 1990s. William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. He is also author of The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Today we discuss his new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance. William Engdahl, welcome back to Guns and Butter. Bonnie, I'm delighted to be back with you. You write in your introduction to your new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, that at the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the old USSR, that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Colin Powell told Army Times in April 1991, <laughs> quote, Think hard about it. I'm running out of demons. I'm running out of villains. I'm down to Castro and Kim Il-sung, end quote. You write that the dilemma was soon to be resolved. Washington unveiled a dramatic new weapon, fake democracy, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, that would be used to covertly create pro-Washington regimes in strategic parts of the world. According to your book, it all started early in 1983 when Reagan's CIA director, William Casey, convinced Reagan to create a kind of shadow CIA, a private non-governmental organization that would escape the scrutiny and criticism of the CIA. That NGO was the National Endowment for Democracy. What was the stated purpose of the National Endowment for Democracy, and what was its real purpose? The First of all, the name National Endowment for Democracy was chosen deliberately for its resonance with other government uh, agencies, such as the National Endowment for Humanities or National Endowment for Arts. So this word endowment makes it sound very noble, philanthropic. But the aim of it, Alan Weinstein, who wrote the legislation to create NED back in the 80s under Reagan, uh, gave an interview to the Washington Post years later. He said a lot of what we do today was done covertly years ago by the CIA. And that really says it all right there. You have to go into the context of the 
early 1980s. You had congressional committees, you had the church committee, you had uh, Gerald Ford, uh, well, this was a, a little bit earlier, uh, in the 70s. You had Gerald Ford appointing uh, a committee with Nelson Rockefeller in charge to examine all these accusations that the CIA was running rogue operations, was running uh, assassination and regime change around the world from Iran to Guatemala and Chile with Pinochet dictatorship and so forth. And Casey was looking as Reagan's CIA chief in the, in the early 80s, Casey was looking for a way to take the spotlight, the heat off of the agency. And he and several people around him came up with the idea of creating, of privatizing the CIA destabilization dirty tricks functions. And that became the National Endowment for Democracy. Well, what did they say that the purpose of the National Endowment for Democracy was? The stated purpose in the legislation would be to uh, promote democracy, promote human rights uh, against totalitarian governments around the world that are anti-democratic. And they would... uh, do it with taxpayer dollars. So this is the the part about it that isn't so widely discussed, but the big money for the NED, let's call it, comes from the US Congress. It's a government funded operation and it works in collaboration with something called the US Agency for International Development, USAID, uh, connected with the State Department, but de facto connected with the CIA. It's, It's used all around the world as as a conduit for CIA dirty tricks and arms smuggling and so forth. So the National Endowment for Democracy was, I I call it a brilliant uh, tactic of of the U.S. government to create dirty tricks against people that uh, it's not fond of. And one of the uh, neocons, Joshua Moravchik of Freedom House, a CIA front, said the idea of the NED was to create, quote, a second layer of insulation between recipients of U.S. government money and the U.S. government, and that funds originating in the Treasury, distributed by an independent private agency, would not be tied to any particular U.S. administration, and these are more acceptable. So if China finds that something called the National Endowment for Democracy is trying to uh, create a you know, revolution in China against the Communist Party, uh, it doesn't sound as sinister as saying that the CIA has been caught with their hands in the cookie jar. So that's that's more or less uh, the way it has been constructed. And it's uh, it's all the rhetoric of pro-democracy. I call it the, the weaponization of democracy and human rights. And this has become, in the, in the last 30 years since NED was created, it's become a huge industry and a very refined, very polished, uh, and very effective regime change apparatus. What is the National Democratic Institute, the NDI, and, and what are the other National Endowment for Democracy affiliates? Because the NED it- is not the only one, right? Right, there, there are essentially four of these. And the National Democratic Institute is 
loosely affiliated with the Democratic Party. Keep in mind, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the two main parties in the United States today, are not entirely clean organizations, as is not the AFL-CIO. And all three of those are connected through these, these uh, subsidiaries of NED. For example, when you have a democratic or social democratic government in some part of the world, let's say in South America or whatever, and they have fraternal relations with the U.S. Democratic Party, then the National Democratic Institute would be the vehicle that would be used to, to influence that, that government. And the head of the National Democratic Institute uh, today is Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State during the Yugoslav War. So, And then the other uh, daughter institutes are the International Republican Institute, which has a more right-wing profile. It's tied to the Republican Party, but independent. And it's funded also by USAID, which is, uh, as I said earlier, a conduit often for the CIA's dirty tricks. And it's headed by John, Senator John McCain, at least up until his recent illness, and the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So John McCain was instrumental in the coup d'etat in Ukraine, for example, in 2014, as head of the IRI, International Republican Institute, of the National Endowment. And the other one is called the Solidarity Center, which is tied to the AFL-CIO Labor Federation. Going back to Walter Ruther and the Cold War days in the 1950s, the AFL-CIO has always had a fairly tight relation, internationally at least, with the uh, U.S. State Department and and an intelligence community. And then finally, there's something called the Center for International Private Enterprise, which is tied to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So those four are the four arms of the National Endowment for Democracy, and they, uh, they disperse grant money in all sorts of very sly and subtle ways to, to create regime change around the world. Wow, that's very interesting. And all these four uh, offshoots of the National Endowment for Democracy, they're all funded through the government, correct? That's correct, yes. At the very same time as the creation of the National Endowment for Democracy, the Soros Foundation was founded in 1984 in, in Budapest, Hungary, by currency speculator George Soros, who had been born there. Do you, yeah. think, do you think that these two NGOs, the National Endowment for Democracy and the Soros Foundation, which were founded at the same time, were working together from the very start? I would be shocked if somebody could prove to me that they were not working together from the very start. Every place where the U.S. State Department wants to make regime change, whether it be Ukraine, whether it be Poland back in the uh, end of the 80s, early 90s with its uh, shock therapy and so forth, whether it be uh, Myanmar or wh whatever, the Soros Foundation is inevitably there right by the side of, of the National Endowment for Democracy and Freedom House and, and a few others. So it's, it's a... Uh, 
battery, if you will, a battery of NGOs, fake democracy NGOs, I call them, that are deployed so that it appears from every single different direction that, that uh, you know, uh, there's this huge popular movement for change in, in different countries. And the change is always geared toward the benefit of the U.S. State Department's agenda at any particular time. Now, according to your book, uh, George Soros recruited Jeffrey Sachs from Harvard University to work with him in the Soros Foundation. Was mm-hmm. uh, was Jeffrey Sachs recruited by Soros early on in the founding of the Soros Foundation? Well, it's, it's at the very latest by the end of the 1980s when, when the Reagan administration was, uh, and then the later George Bush Sr. Uh, were involved in uh, toppling the communist government in Poland using Solidarność, the uh, Lech Walesa's trade union umbrella organization, and uh, so the Soros and Jeffrey Sachs were working very, very closely. First in Poland, where shock therapy was uh, applied in the first case, through Jeffrey Sachs called it shock therapy, and the idea of that was. You have state enterprises that have existed for some 45 years in Poland and Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia then and Hungary and other countries. So the only way to get rid of the habits of communism, argued Jeffrey Sachs, was to have an economic shock to free the prices up immediately to you know let them go to world market prices. But the wages in those countries were not freed up. So you had a huge unemployment, you had bankrupting of of state-owned enterprises, and then people like George Soros would move in for the kill, and using dollars, because the currencies uh, were collapsing in in these countries, using American dollars, they were able to buy up the crown jewels of Poland and other countries for for, uh, pennies. So that, that's the shock therapy model. And Soros and, and Sachs were very closely, not only in Poland, but later in the former Soviet Union. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, How Washington Destroyed Poland and Russia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the first target of the CIA's new democracy uh, NGO, the National Endowment for Democracy, was to infiltrate and subvert the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union itself. Since mm-hmm. Poland since Poland was considered the weak link in the Warsaw Pact, the attack began there. Why was Poland considered the weak link in Moscow's chain of control? The key to the Poland uh, transformation or destabilization of the Communist Party uh, was the election of Pope John Paul II and the diplomacy of Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration with Pope John Paul II. He had a meeting in 1982 when Ronald Reagan first became president 
Reagan went to the Vatican and privately met the Pope, the new Polish Pope. And they agreed to a clandestine campaign to simply bring down the communist uh, Warsaw Pact Alliance. And uh, it was described by Richard Allen, the national security advisor at the time to Reagan, as one of the great secret alliances of all time, because Moscow was never able politically to significantly weaken the influence of the Catholic Church in Poland. They had to tolerate it. And there's, there's a quite, uh, if it's accurate or not, we'll never know, but quite a telling uh, comment from uh, Edward Gierig, the head of the Polish communist government then, in a cabinet session where it was announced that uh, Wojtyla, the Polish foreign cardinal, had just been elected Pope in 1978, and Gierig reportedly said, oh God, what are we going to do now? Jesus and Mary, this is the end. <laughs> this is from a communist leader. So I, and I can imagine that something like that was, was the case, because then the National Endowment for Democracy, in coordination with a network of priests in Poland that the Vatican uh, recruited to this, were able to smuggle in uh, fax machines and, you know, all sorts of equipment to uh, to Solidarność in, in order to begin getting out propaganda against the communist government. The Free Trade Union Institute of the NED played a crucial role in that. And they, they put tens of millions of U.S. dollars into that destabilization. So would you say then that for the Vatican to name a Polish pope, that that was a strategic move politically from the very start? I mean, that's why uh, John Paul II was chosen, wouldn't you think? Well, this gets into a controversy over, over the College of Cardinals. There are different accounts from Catholic scholars who say that Washington exerted strong influence on the College of Cardinals to get John Paul II elected. I'm not in a position to, to prove that one way or the other, but what is clear is that once a Polish Pope was in the Vatican as, as Pope, the Reagan administration began to work with him to bring down the communist regime and open the door for the church to come back in. Right, and I think it's very significant that the role of George H.W. Bush in all of this, he began as Reagan's vice president, of course, and then went on to become president from 89 to 93, and that's when all of these destabilizations really got rolling. Yeah. With, with regard to the Polish Pope, uh, John Paul II, then Ronald Reagan with George H.W. Bush, etc. They're all working with the CIA, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Well, George H.W. Bush had been the uh, director of the CIA back in the 70s, and he always maintained a close network of CIA old boys that he worked with inside the agency as well as outside, supposedly private. Yes, I was surprised to read in your new book, Manifest Destiny, that actually it was President Carter who had, what, fired 300 CIA agents that 
had worked under George H.W. Bush as CIA director. Is that right? Yes, yes. And then uh, Bush kind of regrouped these uh, ex-CIA pals of his, or whatever you want to call them, uh, into private entities that continued as kind of a rogue CIA. What role did Solidarnosc, the Polish trade union, play in the looting and asset stripping of Poland? And was this Polish trade union different from other trade unions in Poland? The Solidarność, you remember the uh, uh, Polish uh, dock workers, ship workers uh, in the north of Poland, where uh, Lech Walesa, the trade union leader of Solidarność, was based. And he eventually got a Nobel Peace Prize, like Barack Obama, for, for loyal service to, uh, to the U.S. government, I guess. But uh, he and Solidarność led mass demonstrations in Poland, which conveniently hid the role of the church. And uh, those demonstrations effectively were so big that they brought down the Communist Party. And in 1990, uh, the communist Jaroszewski resigned as Polish leader and uh, Valenza, the head of Solidarność, was elected president. And that, uh, in answer to your question, that is the point at which Jeffrey Sachs of Harvard University and the shock therapy and George Soros were given essentially a free reign to, to uh, strip the Polish economy of anything of value. And they, they did a pretty good job. They went together with an IMF program, International Monetary Fund, in 1990. And uh, Soros had a foundation called the Stefan Batory Foundation in, in Warsaw. And they simply destroyed the, the old the Polish economy. The government was not allowed to create national bank money to finance budget deficits. So you had no choice, but according to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to have savage austerity, cut the government expenses. That led to hundreds of thousands of Polish government employees out of work. And then uh, price controls, government price controls were ended. Apartment rents, costs for fuel, for transportation, the heating were suddenly at Western market levels instead of these subsidized uh, Eastern Soviet levels. And then French, Italian, German uh, products were allowed to be imported uh, free of, of, of tariff. And this Soros-Sachs shock therapy was called the Belcherovich prime, to give it a Polish uh, kind of fig leaf. The finance minister was uh, Leslak Belcherovich at the time. The result of the shock therapy is uh, inflation rose almost 600% in the first year. And the currency, the Zloty, was in a free float against the dollar and dropped like a stone. So this is what was done to Poland. And then once you pushed the economy and the wage levels down to the bottom, you could open up the economy for sale to Western buyers like German industry or, or uh, uh, French or whatever. And uh, that's essentially the history of Poland at the time. 
Now, how did they kick off the economic shock therapy in Poland? Was Poland in debt to the IMF? Was that how this started? Well, it was in debt during during the 80s. Poland began borrowing, or in the 70s actually, Poland, like Yugoslavia, began borrowing from very uh, willing to lend Western banks like Chase Manhattan or uh, Citigroup or J.P. Morgan and so forth. And at that time, they were separate. The dollar debts of Poland were, at the time of the early 80s and the destabilization, they were simply out of proportion. They, they were unpayable. So that was the basis on which the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, was brought in say, okay, you want Western credits. This was, this was the trade-off that was promised under, under uh, Harvard shock therapy. You want Western bank credits to, to finance your economy and invest in your economy. You have to follow the dictates of the International Monetary Fund from Washington. And those dictates were to simply like an asset stripping of the Polish economy. What surprises me about all of this with regard to Poland and other countries is mm-hmm. that under communist rule, why would they be borrowing money from Western banks? They were borrowing because they had to have hard currencies to invest in the economy. And the stresses of the Soviet Union in the 80s to keep up with, with the military buildup of the Reagan administration, the debacle in Afghanistan, Nicaragua, and various other things where uh, the West was putting simultaneous pressure on, on, on Moscow. Moscow was increasing the pressure on the uh, Comic-Con, the, the Eastern European economies to finance its military budget to keep up with, with the US. So to keep its population content as much as possible, they began borrowing from the West, uh, from Western banks. And uh, at the beginning of the borrowing, the interest rates were very low. And then into the 1980s, there came this Paul Volcker shock therapy in the early 80s, and the interest rates went, went soaring. And that's when they had to borrow more money to roll over the, you know, the old debt and whatnot, they got into a debt trap. And that was, I think, very deliberately done by the, by the West. Oh, I see. So it was the United States' pressure on the Soviet Union with the arms race, etc., that, mm-hmm. that began to bankrupt the USSR, and then that had a domino effect in the Warsaw Pact that uh, Moscow couldn't uh, be as big of a help to these countries, perhaps, as it had been in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah more or less that. Yeah, that makes sense. That energy subsidies—they got their energy from uh, Russian, you know, gas fields, Siberian gas fields, and so forth. So the Russian government or the, the Soviet government then uh, had to increase the cost of, of natural gas to the Polish economy, things like that. So then that has a knock-on effect throughout the whole economy. Now you also mentioned that the Polish government was not able to issue its own credit, meaning that somehow 
the U.S. and the Soros Foundation, etc., was able to dollarize the Polish uh, economy. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly what uh, they did, and they did the same thing later with, with Russia, Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that was dictated by the International Monetary Fund. So they, they had a debt crisis. The Western creditors were demanding their pound of flesh. The government of Lech Walesa said, well, what do we do? And they said, uh, you have to f free float these lotti, the, the Polish currency, against the dollar and uh, create market conditions. And your central bank can't print money to, you know, to paper over the crisis. So it's created catastrophe. And, you know, it's, it was a completely predictable catastrophe for the real economy. Yeah, well, dollarizing the economies of countries through the IMF, I mean, this is what's done constantly, right? It just happened in Brazil a couple of years ago. Same thing, sure. right? Sure, it's always the same recipe by the IMF. Uh, they uh, force these governments to free float their currency, devalue it you know, drastically against the dollar, and then the only currency of real value seemed to be the dollar, so... It, uh, it has that effect. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, How Washington Destroyed Poland and Russia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the 1986 oil price collapse that was engineered by the U.S. State Department and Saudi Arabia hurt Russia tremendously. Was that its intent? Was this 1986 oil price collapse, was that all orchestrated in order to hurt Russia? I think it was, and I've written about this in, in several of my books, uh, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars, among them Century of War. Uh, and I've looked at the State Department documents when George Schultz was Secretary of State and uh, George Bush Sr. was Vice President, but very active, hands-on, de facto foreign policy president under Reagan. And they worked with the Saudis the Saudis wanted to regain domination of the oil pricing within OPEC, and the U.S. wanted to do a number of things. One, Bush wanted to become president in 1988, and a dramatic collapse of the oil price would give the economy a nice shot in the arm uh, so that people would have a feel-good effect, and good economy means Republicans are, are easy to re-elect, or George Bush Sr., but I think the effect on bringing down the Soviet Union was, was the centerpiece of that 1986 oil price collapse. And what it did, it was done at the same time that the Reagan CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy were promoting the Solidarność in Poland. They were doing the Afghan uh, Mujahideen operations against the Soviet Red Army in Afghanistan and uh, against the pro-Moscow government in Nicaragua. Uh, so on every corner, Moscow was, was under huge pressure. Plus, Reagan had announced uh, in 1983 
what the press called Star Wars, this ballistic missile defense program that really, and I know from Russian think tanks uh, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union told me that that really was the straw that broke the camel's back to try to keep up military spending with the U.S. missile defense uh, initiative. So all of this put, uh, put huge strains on Russia, and Bush played the key role in, in that. What were executive orders 1233 and then executive order 13233, which was Bush Jr., George W. Now, Bush? Uh, essentially, what those executive orders did was it's a well known secret in Washington that Ronald Reagan was, was not a hands on president, especially in foreign policy. And he signed an order, an executive order, 12333, a national security directive, actually was d- drafted by Bush's people, Bush's vice president, that effectively secretly put George Herbert Walker Bush in charge of all Reagan U.S. foreign and national security operations after 1981. And when George W. Bush became president in 2001, One of the first things he did was to sign another executive order, which claimed as national security the grounds to conceal records of past president, especially his father during the collapse of the Soviet Union. So those two taken together have kept most of the nefarious activities of the Bush family and the CIA and the U.S. State Department in the destruction of of Russia in the the 1990s from from the public eye. What was George H.W. Bush's network, The Enterprise? How was it formed and and what did it do? If you remember back in the later part of the Reagan administration in the 1980s, you had Colonel Oliver North and other uh, intelligence officials around the Bush networks that were involved in something that became called the Iran-Contra affair. And the Iran-Contra Contra were the Nicaraguan Contras. They were anti-communist. They were supported by the CIA and the U.S. government. They were also involved in heavy drug running into an airfield in Arkansas uh, called Mena, Arkansas, when uh, certain uh, William Jefferson Clinton was governor. So we'll leave that aside for now. But the Iran-Contra operation was ultimately run by something that was known in their correspondence, in their uh, uh, kind of covert deep state that called itself the Enterprise. And they worked directly for Vice President Bush. And what they were engaged in was... was uh, violating the, the laws of Congress, essentially, to to uh, sell weapons to Iran and also to the Contras in Nicaragua, where Congress didn't want to get involved. So that almost brought down George Bush, except for the fact that he was able to uh, sweep it under the rug and get Reagan to uh, pardon him from, from any prosecution. So the enterprise, so this was General Richard Secord, Colonel Oliver North, and a whole network of, of handpicked 
CIA old boys, they were kept together, the machinery was kept together to begin to go into the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, well before the collapse, and began cultivating corrupt KGB generals. And this was the real origins of the Russian oligarchs, not not so-called uh, Russian organized crime, as, as the Western media called it, but it was it was a CIA, a George Bush uh, operation to recruit KGB generals that were corruptible, that would do anything for becoming a billionaire in the collapse of their own Soviet state. Well, that's very interesting. Then George H.W. Bush's The Enterprise Network were the ones that initially corrupted these KGB officers, which then ultimately, of course, led to a very complex, decades-long looting and stripping of Russia. Is that right? I call it in in my book, in, in the Manifest Destiny book, I call it the rape of Russia, and that's there's no other term that describes what was done by by these uh, this operation of, of George Bush Sr. and the CIA old boys around him and the, the bankers that he worked with. Uh, they literally, they put Boris Yeltsin in as their hand-picked man to loot the Russian treasury uh, of its gold reserves, for example. Uh, the Yeltsin family was a mafia that included the uh, the so-called oligarchs that emerged with the privatization of, of all these uh, state assets, the world's largest aluminum company, some of the world's largest uh, and most high-tech military companies. You had privatization of, of mostly raw materials uh, and just huge fortunes were being made by, by these oligarchs and their bankers in the West. What was George H.W. Bush's Operation Hammer. Was it a four-part plan? And and what was it? Bush, you know, the CIA likes likes these acronyms, Operation Hammer, uh, was the destruction and attack on the post-communist Russian Federation, the destruction of the Soviet Union. So the West brought down the Soviet Union in a very, very determined way. If you want to understand the real roots of the the animosity, the venom between Washington, between the State Department, the CIA, U.S. intelligence, British intelligence, and Russia under Putin, you have to really understand what I detail in this, in the book, and in terms of the rape of Russia and and the role of the U.S. in, in the early 90s under Yeltsin. So Operation Hammer called for the CIA to secretly finance uh, the famous general's coup against Gorbachev back in August 91. Uh, That was the coup that brought Boris Yeltsin on top of the tank outside the White House near Red Square in, in Moscow. And Western media very quickly pushed Yeltsin as the great democratic hero against the uh, corrupt and and, uh, dictatorial Gorbachev. And then the next part of the Operation Hammer, they'd use secret financial uh, resources, a war chest, to destabilize the currency, the ruble, you know, to collapse it. And then 
they corrupted officials of the National Bank, it was called Gosbank under, under the Soviet times, to steal the Russian Federation official gold reserves. And the next, the final phase was the privatization of strategic energy, raw materials, high-tech military industry in the Soviet Union. And that was done with the IMF dictated privatization. It was done again with Harvard's Jeffrey Sachs and other Harvard economists working in Moscow and uh, Yeltsin's finance minister, Yegor Gaidar, and George Soros, of course. You write about Riggs Bank of Washington, D.C. and Republic Bank of New York about Riggs Volmet S.A. How were George H.W. and Jonathan Bush connected to these banks, and what was the purpose of these banks? The money that these oligarchs were making, as long as it stayed in Russia, was very vulnerable. If, if Yeltsin would ever uh, be toppled and, uh, and uh, uh, God forbid, someone like Vladimir Putin, a nationalist, would become president, then those assets could be seized. So they needed, these oligarchs needed to get their money out of, uh, out of Russia. And there, uh, the Bush networks, the CIA old boys and so forth, came willingly uh, to the service of, of these new Russian oligarchs, these new billionaires. So one of the key banks, it's now changed name and, and so forth, was a bank in Washington, D.C. called Riggs Bank. And since the 1960s, Riggs Bank had been known as a CIA bank during the Cuba Bay of Pigs operation. And the Riggs Bank had created an international banking group called Riggs Valmet, you mentioned. And the brother of George Herbert Walker Bush, now President Bush, Jonathan Bush, worked with Riggs Bank to set up Riggs Valmet in Geneva to launder the money of these Russian oligarchs. So you really have an incestuous operation where, where the Russian oligarchs are completely dependent on these Western banks that are connected with the CIA. So, uh, you know, anytime the U.S. government would want to, they could pull the plug on these oligarchs if they stopped, uh, you know, doing what they were told to do. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, How Washington Destroyed Poland and Russia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And I think you write that Antigua became the destination for much of the looted Russian assets. And I suppose that worked the same way? Yeah, yeah. Antigua, the Isle of Man, which is an offshore money laundering center that the, the British control. Uh, shell companies were set up so you could never trace this. And it's interesting to note, uh, Bonnie, the, the names of these oligarchs, they were young young meaning in their 30s and 40s, uh, protégés of these old KGB generals that worked with, with the Bush enterprise, Operation Hammer. And among them were Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the one who later became famous as the head of Yukos Oil and later became put in, in prison for corruption and, and fraud and tax avoidance by, by the Putin presidency. 
But uh, Roman, Roman Abramovich, who went on to buy a football club in, in the UK and uh, left Russia, and Boris Berezovsky, who was one of the nastiest of these young oligarchs, and uh, they were known as the kids of the corrupt KGB generals. They were trained by these Western bankers like Jonathan Bush and others uh, to launder money. They were trained in money laundering. So the, the, the levels of corruption and uh, financial incest involved in the, the rape of Russia by, by the West, by the CIA, by George Bush's networks, uh, and then as soon as he became president, the Bill Clinton with, with Larry Summers as deputy treasury secretary running these Harvard economists out of Moscow. What can you tell us about the Russian bank Menatap? I believe in your book you say that uh, Kordakovsky actually had acquired 100 state enterprises before he ever even got a hold of Yukos Oil. Yeah. Well, he was on the inside. These young prospective oligarchs were working with the Yeltsin Finance Ministry, with the Harvard economists, uh, with George Soros. There was a coupon privatization that uh, the idea was 140 million coupons would be distributed, one to every man, woman, and child in the Russian Federation. And those coupons were good for a share of these soon-to-be-privatized state companies. Well, if you have only one coupon and you don't even know where you're going to get enough money to, uh, you know, to buy food, there was a black market in buying and selling these coupons on street corners back then for hard currency dollars. So Berezovsky, Khodorkovsky, and, and these prospective oligarchs began buying up like a vacuum cleaner, buying up all, the, all these coupons. And then in these corrupt privatization auctions, they were able to essentially steal state assets for pennies on the dollar. And uh, I think someone estimated that the entirety of the uh, Russian Federation economy through these vouchers was valued at uh, something like $54 billion. This was a multi, multi-trillion dollar economy of oil resources, some of the biggest oil companies in the world, of, of the aluminum, of gold, gold mines and, and whatnot. And uh, through the coupon rigging and the, the fraud around that, these oligarchs and their Western banker friends around George Bush Sr. and later around uh, the Clinton administration were able to simply steal the state assets of the Russian people. That's the best way to understand it. It was about the value of the General Electric Company on the New York Stock Exchange for the entire Russian economy. That's what they these vouchers or coupons, uh, if you translated, would would oh, price the, the assets. It's hard to even comprehend such a with such a ripoff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just astonishing, and the forbearance of the Russian people. I, I've been to Russia many times as, as a researcher and and uh, doing interviews and and whatnot over the last well, since nineteen ninety four, and the the forbearance of the Russian people not to become bitterly anti-American after what was done to them is, is quite remarkable. 
Could you talk a little bit about the Harvard Institute for International Development, which received, I believe you written, uh, USAID grants? What was their role in the takedown of the old USSR? The Harvard HIID, that you just mentioned, Institute for International Development, was a very clever scheme by former Harvard professor Larry Summers, who was now in the uh, Bill Clinton Treasury in Washington. And Larry Summers was running the looting of, of the Russian Federation economy. And he sent Jeffrey Sachs, a former Harvard professor, like uh, Summers, and uh, several other Harvard economists that worked with Summers to Moscow to set up this HIID. And the HIID later was uh, investigated for fraud and corruption, and the Harvard University had to pay millions of dollars in fines because of that. So essentially, Harvard was, was used to kind of launder the destruction of the Russian economy. I think the argument would be that uh, if you use the State Department, it would be too obvious, like the National Endowment for Democracy. You want to hide behind the skirts of a reputable university like Harvard and then do all the dirty work. So it was, in effect, this network of, of Larry Summers in the Clinton Treasury Department that was doing this with the USAID monies, which was a CIA front agency for the most part. And you write about something called Open Russia that involved uh, Jacob Lord Rothschild, George Soros, and uh, Mikhail Kordakovsky, uh, who you've already said got a hold of Yukos Oil, and even Henry Kissinger. What was Open Russia? Well, Open Russia, uh, Soros's foundation was called Open Society, and Khodorkovsky was in the process of literally buying the Russian Duma parliament for millions of dollars, you know, just bribing them to get them to change the laws on ownership of, of minerals, oil and gas uh, under the ground and also the pipeline laws that would would uh, favor the state you know one thing that vladimir putin did when he became president in 1999 or 2000 was to take concrete measures to stabilize the state organizations of oil and gas energy and defense, you know, to have something to work with to keep the nation from being completely looted and destroyed, turned into a casino, which is what was done under Yeltsin. So Khodorkovsky created this Open Russia Foundation as kind of his uh, philanthropic front. And on the board of that, as you mentioned, were Lord Rothschild of London, of the famous London banking family. And uh, also, Henry Kissinger gave it a nice uh, touch there. But uh, when when Khodorkovsky was arrested, he secretly transferred or tried to transfer ownership of Yukos Oil to Jacob Rothschild. It didn't work. The, the Russian courts threw that out, but uh, that was what he was trying to do there. Actually, how how was it that Vladimir Putin was uh, selected somehow to be part of the Boris Yeltsin government. When did that happen? 
1998, two years after the election, the Yeltsin Kremlin was forced into a compromise because the Duma refused to ratify Viktor Chernomyrdin as prime minister. So to calm this opposition, which by then was getting very animated and lively, uh, Yeltsin named a very respected outsider to head the government as prime minister, uh, Yevgeny Primakov, a former head of the KGB foreign intelligence and former foreign minister as prime minister. And uh, as soon as Primakov became prime minister, he went after one of the top Yeltsin oligarchs, Berezhovsky, who fled to London uh, as a result of the arrest warrant for his involvement in an Aeroflot ticket scam. And then uh, Primakov, when he learned that the U.S. government, the Clinton administration, was illegally bombing Serbia in March of 99, he was on a Russian jet en route to meetings in Washington. He immediately ordered the pilot to return to Moscow, and that became called the Primakov Loop. And in Moscow, he protested that Yeltsin had to intervene to support the Serbs, uh, historical allies of Russia. And at that, Yeltsin fired Primakov uh, using the economy as an excuse. So it was getting very, very uncomfortable for Yeltsin at, at this point. He'd lost control the when, when uh, NATO started bombing Serbia illegally, Yeltsin lost control of his own military. And uh, uh, the military ordered Russian troops to seize the airport in, in Kosovo, Pristina. And uh, this was the beginning of the end of Yeltsin. If you don't have control over the military, you don't have the, the power of persuasion. So he fired his interim prime minister and looked for a, an unknown who could be manipulated, he thought, to continue the game. And that unknown was a, uh, an official from the mayor's office of St. Petersburg named Vladimir Putin. Uh, Putin had little political experience and somehow was able to convince uh, Yeltsin and the various oligarchs that Putin would be amenable to the oligarchs and their agenda, that they could do business with Putin. And that seems to have been a KGB deception operation on the part of the group of nationalists around Putin. And once Putin uh, was appointed, he gave Yeltsin an ultimatum to resign or face real consequences for corruption and crimes. So Yeltsin resigned in December 1999 and named Prime Minister Putin as acting president until the March elections the following year. And that is the beginning of the Putin era. And until this day, the CIA and the State Department and every successive U.S. president loathes the figure of Vladimir Putin because they, he put a block into the complete destruction of Russia as a functioning state. He's a nationalist. That's the best way to understand it. Now, you mentioned the war in Yugoslavia. Let's cover that next week. Okay. Uh, that's a, an incredible story, as most of the stories are that I document in this book. When I finished it, I, I stood back from, from what I'd researched and put together. and Even I was shocked at some of this. But uh, that's how 
the fake democracy machine of the U.S. government uh, has tried to build its power, build the uh, uh, one world order, new world order, Bush uh, Sr. called it. William Engdahl, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I, it's a pleasure to work with you and to be on with you again. I've been speaking with F. William Engdahl. Today's show has been Fake Democracy, How Washington Destroyed Poland and Russia in the 1990s. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. He is also author of Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Planned to Cage the Asian Dragon, and The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. His newest book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance is available through his website at williamengdahl.com. That's William E N G D A H L.com. Email him at info at williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?